Chapter 2. Well-being for All. Section 1. Well-being for all is not a dream. It is possible, realizable, owing to all that our ancestors have done to increase our powers of production. We know, indeed, that the producers, although they constitute hardly one-third of the inhabitants of civilized countries, even now produce such quantities of goods that a certain degree of comfort could be bought to every hearth. We know further that if all those who squandered today the fruits of others' toil were forced to employ their leisure in useful work, our wealth would increase in proportion to the number of producers, and more. Finally, we know that contrary to the theory enunciated by Malthus, that oracle of middle-class economics, the productive powers of the human race increase at a much more rapid ratio than its powers of reproduction. The more thickly men are crowded on the soil, the more rapid is the growth of their wealth-creating power. Thus, although the population of England has only increased from 1844 to 1890 by 62%, its production has grown, even at the lowest estimate, at double that rate. To wit, by 130%. In France, where the population has grown more slowly, the increase in production is nevertheless very rapid. Notwithstanding the crises through which agriculture is frequently passing, notwithstanding state interference, the blood tax, conscription, and industrial production more than tenfold in the course of the last 80 years. In the United States, the progress is still more striking. In spite of immigration, or rather precisely because of the influx of surplus European labor, the United States have multiplied their wealth tenfold. However, these figures give but a very faint idea of what our wealth might become under better conditions. For alongside of the rapid development of our wealth-producing powers, we have an overwhelming increase in the ranks of the idlers and the middlemen. Instead of capital gradually concentrating itself in a few hands, so that it would only be necessary for the community to dispossess a few millionaires and enter upon its lawful heritage, instead of this socialist forecast proving true, the exact reverse is coming to pass. The swarm of parasites is ever increasing. In France, there are not 10 actual producers to every 30 inhabitants. The whole agricultural wealth of the country is the work of less than 7 million men, and in the two great industries, mining and the textile trades, you will find that the workers number less than 2.5 million. But the exploiters of labor, how many are they? In the United Kingdom, a little over one million workers, men, women, and children, are employed in all the textile trades. Less than 900,000 work the mines, much less than two million till the ground. And it appeared from the last industrial census that only a little over four million men, women, and children were employed in all the industries. Footnote. 4,013,711 now employed in all the 53 branches of different industries, including the state ordinance works, and 241,530 workers engaged in the construction and maintenance of railways, their aggregate production reaching the value of 1,041,037,000, and the net output being 406,799,000. So that the statisticians have to exaggerate all the figures in order to establish a maximum of 8 million producers to 45 million inhabitants. 
Strictly speaking, the creators of the goods exported from Britain to all the ends of the earth comprise only from 6 to 7 million workers. And what is the number of the shareholders and middlemen who levy the first fruits of labor from far and near and heap up unearned gains by thrusting themselves between the producer and the consumer? Nor is this all. The owners of capital consistently reduce the output by restraining production. We need not speak of the cartloads of oysters thrown into the sea to prevent a dainty, hitherto reserved for the rich, from becoming a food for the people. We need not speak of the thousand and one luxuries, stuffs, foods, etc., etc., treated after the same fashion as the oysters. It is enough to remember the way in which the production of the most necessary things is limited. Legions of miners are ready and willing to dig out coal every day and send it to those who are shivering with cold, but too often a third, or even one half of their number are forbidden to work more than three days a week because, forsooth, the price of coal must be kept up. Thousands of weavers are forbidden to work the looms, although their wives and children go in rags, and although three-quarters of the population of Europe have no clothing worthy of the name. Hundreds of blast furnaces, thousands of factories periodically stand idle, others only work half-time, and in every civilized nation there is a permanent population of about two million individuals who ask only for work, but to whom work is denied. How gladly would these millions of men set to work to reclaim wastelands, or to transform ill-cultivated land into fertile fields, rich in harvests. A year of well-directed toil would suffice to multiply fivefold the produce of those millions of acres in this country which lie idle now as permanent pasture, or of those dry lands in the south of France which now yield only about eight bushels of wheat per acre. But men, who would be happy to become hardy pioneers in so many branches of wealth-producing activity, must remain idle, because the owners of the soil, the mines and the factories, prefer to invest their capital, taken in the first place from the community, in Turkish or Egyptian bonds, or in Patagonian gold mines, and so make Egyptian fellas, Italian emigrants, and Chinese coolies their wage slaves. This is the direct and deliberate limitation of production, but there is also a limitation indirect and not of set purpose, which consists in spending human toil on objects absolutely useless, or destined only to satisfy the dull vanity of the rich. It is impossible to reckon in figures the extent of which wealth is restricted indirectly, the extent of which energy is squandered while it might have served to produce, and above all to prepare the machinery necessary to production. It is enough to cite the immense sums spent by Europe in armaments, for the sole purpose of acquiring control of the markets, and so forcing her own goods on neighboring territories, and making exploitation easier at home, the millions paid every year to officials of all sorts, whose function it is to maintain the rights of minorities, the right, that is, of a few rich men, to manipulate the economic activities of the nation, the millions spent on judges, prisons, policemen, and all the paraphernalia of so-called justice, spent to no purpose, because we know that every alleviation, however slight, of the wretchedness of our great cities is always followed by a considerable diminution of crime. Lastly, the millions spent on propagating pernicious doctrines by means of the press, and news cooked in the interest of this or that party, of this politician or of that group of speculators. 
But over and above this, we must take into account all of the labor that goes to sheer waste. Here, in keeping up the stables, the kennels, and the retinue of the rich, there, in pandering to the caprices of society and the depraved tastes of the fashionable mob, there again, in forcing the consumer to buy what he does not need, or foisting an inferior article upon him by means of puffery, and in producing, on the other hand, wares which are absolutely injurious, but profitable to the manufacturer. What is squandered in this manner would be enough to double the production of useful things, or so to plenish our mills and factories with machinery that they would soon flood the shops with all that is now lacking to two-thirds of the nation. Under our present system, a full quarter of the producers in every nation are forced to be idle for three or four months in the year, and the labor of another quarter, if not of the half, has no better results than the amusement of the rich or the exploitation of the public. Thus, if we consider on the one hand the rapidity in which civilized nations augment their powers of production, on the other hand the limits set to that production, be it directly or indirectly, by existing conditions, we cannot but conclude that an economic system a trifle more reasonable would permit them to heap up in a few years so many useful products that they would be constrained to say, Enough! We have enough coal and bread and raiment. Let us rest and consider how to best use our powers, how best to employ our leisure. No, plenty for all is not a dream. Though it was a dream indeed in those days when man, for all his pains, could hardly win a few bushels of wheat from an acre of land, and had to fashion by hand all the implements he used in agriculture and industry. Now it is no longer a dream, because man has invented a motor which, with a little iron and a few sacks of coal, gives him the mastery of a creature strong and docile as a horse, and capable of setting the most complicated machinery in motion. But, if plenty for all is to become a reality, this immense capital— Cities, houses, pastures, arable lands, factories, highways, education, must cease to be regarded as private property, for the monopolist to dispose of at his pleasure. The rich endowment, painfully won, builded, fashioned, or invented by our ancestors, must become common property, so that the collective interests of men may gain from it the greatest good for all. There must be expropriation, the well-being of all, the end, expropriation, the means.